Welcome back to The Health Beat, a podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Neha Anand. And I'm Allie Burgess. Today's episode is all about vaccines, and there's been a lot of news about a potential vaccine for COVID-19 recently. Actually, on Tuesday, December 1st, the CDC will meet to decide how vaccine allocation will be prioritized among different people. That'll be a really important meeting as we get closer to a vaccine becoming a reality. And I heard that in England, the first deliveries of a vaccine from Pfizer could be arriving to hospitals as soon as December 7th. That's really soon. Across the ocean in Australia, I read that the country's largest airline said that once a vaccine becomes widely available, the carrier will likely require passengers to be vaccinated. Wow, imagine having to show both your passport and your vaccination records. This is 2020. (laughs) Yeah. So there's been so much news about vaccines, and there's been a lot of questions about each of the trials that have published results recently. We're going to go into depth about each of those trials and some of the questions that our followers on our Instagram at COVIDUpToDate have left for us. But first, Ali, I heard you had a really great conversation with our friend and fellow classmate, Thomas, about the basics of vaccine development and why there's sometimes distrust in vaccines. So let's go ahead and pass it over to you guys. Hi, everyone. I'm Thomas Lay. And I'm Ali, back again. Thomas and I will be discussing vaccine allocation and how vaccines will be implemented in our society. Yeah, it's an interesting state of the world right now because we're recording this in, geez, it's November already, and now we can really feasibly talk about vaccines and the coronavirus. Definitely, yeah. As we're recording this podcast, Pfizer announced that their vaccine is 90% effective, but what does that mean exactly? And so we're not going to talk necessarily on what a vaccine is because that's already been and covered by this podcast, we do want to know as researchers, public health officials, and healthcare workers, what is it about research and trials that makes us confident in giving it to people? And we also plan on talking, as Ali mentioned, about the challenges of giving vaccines from a public health standpoint, especially during pandemic. And so in general, I think everyone knows what a vaccine is and it, it helps prevent diseases. But in particular, what's important to understand is that it gives herd immunity. So Ali, what is herd immunity? Yeah, so herd immunity, according to the Mayo Clinic, occurs when a large portion of the community, which is the herd, becomes immune to a disease, making the spread of disease from person to person unlikely. So as a result, the whole community becomes protected. Yeah, and I think that definition really highlights the fact that a vaccine is not only for yourself, but it's very important to get a vaccine to protect other people around you, hence the whole public health part, right? And I remember growing up, I would always go to the doctor to get a vaccine, but I was just absolutely terrified of getting shots so much that it became this like huge spectacle, like a lot of screaming, a lot of crying and a lot of yelling. And you could clearly hear me in the hallway crying and yelling so much. When I would walk out, like all the kids who are also there to get their vaccines would just be terrified and I just be like 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 tears streaming down my face. The the healthcare receptionist would just have to warn everyone like it's okay, he's having a great time. And <laughs> that's so funny. 
in my case, I'm a twin. So anytime I went to the doctor, it was always with my sister too. And we would kind of look at each other and signal to each other who wanted to get our vaccines done first. And so I think, I think it kind of alternated over the years. Oh, wow. So you had this like, you had the connection, like who's going to take one for the team? Who's exactly. going to go first? The guinea pig. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I think everyone has these stories about vaccines, but I always found it interesting before coming to medical school that I didn't really understand the nuances of what into a vaccine. And so in general, we want to talk about two things when we talk about giving vaccines to people, efficacy and safety. So first we'll talk about efficacy or in layman words, how well a vaccine works. So as I mentioned, we want to know how well a vaccine does, but it has to be in comparison to some group. So when you hold these big trials or these big experiments, you have two groups. You get a group that gets a placebo and a group that gets a treatment. So why do you need this placebo and what is this placebo exactly in, in this case of vaccines for COVID? Yeah, so a placebo in terms of a vaccine would just be perhaps just saline or salt solution that you can inject in yourself that doesn't really do anything. You want to give the placebo instead of just having a group that gets no vaccine and a group that gets a vaccine is because you want to prevent any factors that may prevent disease outside the trial from making it difficult to compare against people that actually get the disease. So let me give an example. So if you had a person that didn't get a flu shot, perhaps they would be more cautious during flu season. Basically, it affects kind of how they perceive their disease. And you want everyone to have the same experience of getting a shot, even if it doesn't work, just so you don't affect their behavior afterwards. You can kind of compare everyone on the same playing field. And then, so afterwards, so you do this trial and you have a placebo group and you have an experiment group, then you have to determine the outcome you're looking at. And so this is where kind of the nuance of experimental design and public health experts debate a lot because your outcome could be either getting the disease, the outcome could be getting a serious complication from the disease, or the outcome could even be long-term effects from the disease. So depending on the trial, it really depends on what sort of thing you're looking at. That's yeah. an important point because I think the public view of a vaccine is that it would prevent any, any form of catching the disease or complications from the disease, but if it's merely to lessen the effects, then that would be important to know when we're administering this vaccine across the board. Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about that later in terms of uh, public acceptance of vaccines and things like that. And so when you have your outcome of interest and you're kind of getting your trial going, Essentially, you look at how your outcome differs among the people that got the vaccine and the people that didn't get the vaccine, and you calculate a percentage of people who had a certain outcome. So let's say catching coronavirus. You would calculate the percent of people that got coronavirus in the placebo group and the percent of people that got coronavirus in the vaccine group, and then compare the difference between the two. And that percent efficacy is usually the number we see in the media. 
And you don't only just do one of these trials, you do multiple trials. So you do trials in three phases, which gradually grow bigger and bigger to ensure that your results are valid in more and more different people. You want to make sure that the vaccine will work in the most generalizable group of people in terms of their demographics and location and risk factors. Yes, that's exactly it. And so now that we talked a little bit about efficacy, the next part is safety in vaccines. And that's pretty controversial these days because one, vaccines, I think there always has been a little bit of controversy surrounding the safety of vaccines, but especially in the case of COVID, when there's expedited trials and pressure to have a vaccine that works and is also safe, it's important that all of the protective measures aren't being circumvented. Yeah, and so that being said, vaccines are safe, but it would be wrong to say that vaccines are 100% safe without risk. However, vaccines do not cause autism. That is just something I'd like to throw out there. But usually the risk of getting a severe adverse event is a lot lower than the risk of serious complications from the disease of preventing. If, if not, then doctors wouldn't be recommending it, right? And so, like, for example, the risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a kind of nerve disease, essentially, from the flu vaccine, is 1.6 per 1 million people vaccinated. That is, that's 0.00016%. So that's pretty just, low. That's, that's pretty low, right? So that being said, some people should not be getting vaccines. So this includes people with severe allergies or people who may have weak immune systems. So when you get your vaccine, you have to fill out a little form that asks you about your medical history. And if you're one of those people, your doctor probably closely follows your disease and is closely monitoring this for you. Yeah, definitely. So in trials, participants are monitored for outcomes after a certain period of time of getting the vaccine. And that's how they check for adverse events from these sort of vaccine trials. And so even after trials have ended, there are surveillance systems in place all around the world to ensure that there are adequate reporting of any side effects from vaccine administration. But in general, evidence has shown that a two-month lead period after giving a vaccine is long enough for you to get any serious side effects. Especially in, you know, a shorter trial period, if, if it's monitored for two months, it's great that that typically covers most of the period when serious side effects would develop. Yeah, yeah. And even the FDA and the literature in general notes that adverse events are related to the vaccine if they start typically within six weeks of giving the vaccine. Okay. Yeah. And that being said, the FDA typically requires six months of safety follow-up for serious and other medically attended adverse events, but that's just because the FDA is a very safe organization. And so to reiterate to all our listeners out there, there are definitely a lot of stop gaps in place to ensure that vaccines are safe. However, times are changing a little bit in coronavirus and pros and cons have to be weighted, including the historical experience of adverse events with the demand for vaccine and the given impact of vaccine. And kind of on the flip side, one other thing that people are trying to evaluate in a vaccine trial is how long a vaccine stays effective. So even if it's safe and effective in the initial trial period, your immune system is constantly changing and antibody levels can wane. And so ensuring that that efficacy is maintained over a long period of time is really important. 
Yeah, yeah. Currently in the vaccine debate during this coronavirus period, that's a big question mark for everyone and that how long would a vaccine last? I mean, we're not sure and we probably won't know until maybe even a couple years of that that data starts to come in. And so I, I, I always I always have fond spot in my heart for talking about vaccines as a medical student because I remember one time I was in a lift and the lift driver heard that I was a medical student and so that we always started spurs a lot of conversation. Yes. <laughs> it always spurs a lot of uh, conversation and maybe a couple medical questions and I didn't know how to tell him like oh, I'm still learning. <laughs> but he 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 told me he's like, "Oh yeah, do you think I should get the flu vaccine?" I was like, "Oh, yes, of course, sir. I think you should get the flu vaccine." And he said, "Oh, well, you know, I think every time I would get the flu vaccine, I would get sick afterwards. And so I stopped getting the flu vaccine and I still got sick. And so I feel like the flu vaccine doesn't work. Mm. And I just had to, I just had to think to him like, well, you know, maybe have, have you considered, you know, perhaps if you get the flu vaccine, it definitely attenuates the response of flu so that if you have, if you were perhaps prime to get a more serious flu, having the flu vaccine would reduce the severity of flu symptoms. And But I think it was a bit difficult to tell him all this in the car as I had to get out. But <laughs> I think it just represented to me a lot of people tend to have misconceptions about the state of what vaccines do, what they don't do. But in general, as we like to reiterate again, here, vaccines work. They definitely do work. And it's hard when we live in a society where I think medications and vaccines are seen as a solution and a 100% guarantee to be able to prevent any disease. And in a lot of cases, like you said, they attenuate the symptoms. It could be something that lessens the effect of the disease, but you know, your immune system isn't black and white. There's not going to be a 100% solution. And so sometimes the best that can be done is lessening the effect or attenuating the actual side effects. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that's actually a great point, because that explains why when we're talking about efficacy, if you get uh, the vaccine shot, there's still a chance that you can get the outcome of interest, let's say like infection or serious complication. Because as you said, the immune system isn't black and white and the vaccine isn't this magical cure-all. If you get the vaccine, you can still get sick, but in general, you would get less sick than if you didn't get a vaccine, which is why they're so important to get. Mm. And that's especially the case with the flu too, because there's so many strains and that indicates why we get the flu shot every year instead of one vaccine and then we're good to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so when we put all this together, we've talked about efficacy, we talked about safety. There's some uh, considerations for when we do research on vaccines. So what are considerations now of actually giving vaccines after you've done all this research work? Well, I think the first thing to talk about is public acceptance and understanding. And as we've mentioned already, the anti-vaccine movement is so big. Yeah, and I think this is also a case of people prioritizing the freedom of choice over public health, which creates a large ethical problem and has been seen, you know, in all cases throughout this pandemic, like wearing masks and choosing to social distance and then also getting the vaccine. It's, it's important to think about the implications of your actions on the entire health system around you and the community. 
Yeah, and there have been studies done of who in the public is willing to get a corona vaccine. And in April, at the height of all the media attention and kind of fear in America, public acceptance of the vaccines was in the 70 to 80%, depending on which survey you looked at. But now in October slash November, when we're recording this podcast, it's dropped down to less than 50%. And generally when broken down by race, the results are even more drastic, such as for black individuals. Black individuals are historically more skeptical of the medical establishment with fears of being experimented on because of things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment where a cohort of Black men were given syphilis and they were not treated, essentially. And so also what I found very interesting is that worldwide studies have shown how trust and government can affect the willingness to get a vaccine. So countries and societies that trust their governments, for example, in Asia, tend to be more willing to get a vaccine. And when they looked at countries that don't trust their government necessarily, like in Russia, people were not very thrilled about getting a vaccine that was government mandated. Hmm. That really, you know, plays into the interconnectedness of policy and the checks in place to make sure that a vaccine or medications are safe and the health system, which is something that hasn't really been brought up at this scale ever before. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's just so difficult to understand all the different moving parts that go into making a vaccine, as we explained about like safety and efficacy. And it's kind of difficult to convey that in an easy, digestible message to the public. And that being said, getting a vaccine doesn't mean that we're completely immune from coronavirus, for example. If we get vaccinated, we will still most likely have to socially distance and wear a mask. Now that we've talked a little bit about public acceptance of giving a vaccine, the next thing I think is also the ethics of giving a vaccine. Hmm. So, and this isn't even applied to coronavirus, but imagine even something like swine flu, H1N1, who gets the vaccine first? And so at least regarding coronavirus, the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention asked the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine to write a study to help policymakers in the U.S. and global health communities to equitably allocate a vaccine. And it's a hot topic because depending on who you ask, different people will have different opinions on who should get the vaccine first. Definitely. And also the interplay between health insurance coverage and vaccine allocation, it really shows, you know, we don't know necessarily what the cost will be per vaccination. And that'll be huge information that'll affect who can pay for it out of pocket if they're not covered by insurance. I was looking into the cost of the vaccine. And in June, Pfizer anticipated making a profit off the vaccine, but they didn't specify how much at that point. It will actually cost around $15 to manufacture, but the company still has to factor in all of the testing, the distribution, marketing, and admin costs. And there's also the added storage costs because the vaccine will have to be stored at a temperature of minus 70 degrees Celsius, which many hospitals don't even have the capability to do right now. So it's really unclear how much it will cost to potential consumers who have to pay. It's also strange that, you know, right now, Medicare Part B, which generally covers approved vaccines, doesn't extend that coverage to vaccines that are approved under emergency use, which 
would be expected for the early administration of the COVID-19 vaccine. So it's really unsure, you know, what the coverage will look like for people who are covered under Medicare, but don't necessarily have vaccine coverage elsewhere. Yeah. And so if we had to think about populations that should get the vaccine first, we want to prioritize healthcare workers, first-line healthcare workers, but we also want to prioritize vulnerable populations. And because of those things that you mentioned, like the, the storage conditions, the cost, we want to help vulnerable populations, but vulnerable populations are going to be the people that won't be living in areas that have these crazy low temperature storage. You won't find freezers like that in like rural areas, for example, or low income areas, or even low income countries for that matter. And as you mentioned, those sort of populations might not be able to afford the vaccine at all. And we also know that communities of color are being disproportionately affected as well from the coronavirus. And we want to try to reach out to them and vaccinate them. But as we previously mentioned, there's this historical disconnect between the medical establishment and, for example, the Black population, and they have valid negative perceptions. And so it's going to be an ongoing challenge to reach out to those populations. Yeah, so I think the the main message is that, you know, vaccine allocation is going to end up being pretty expensive from a federal standpoint and reaching that herd immunity that we talked about in the beginning will be challenging if it it costs a lot of money and requires a lot of distribution infrastructure that we don't currently have. Yeah, and so I think you couldn't have said it any better, Ali. In summary, vaccines are a tricky business. And the end message we want to reemphasize is that public trust in vaccines is important. Understanding what exactly goes into a vaccine is important. And with any medical procedure, there are going to be risks and benefits. But doctors and public health experts aren't going to be releasing a vaccine unless they're very confident that the benefits far outweigh the risks. And although it's a little bit unclear what's going to be going on in the future in terms of the coronavirus, we're hoping, and I'm sure a lot of people are hoping that with continued transparent communication between public health officials and vaccine manufacturers, that we'll all be able to weather the tide of this pandemic together. Well, thank you, Thomas. This has been a great conversation to really break down a lot of the moving parts surrounding vaccine allocation and the implementation of successful vaccination. I think we all have a lot to think about in terms of safety, efficacy, and the ethics involved. Yeah, no, this has been this has been really fun. Uh, thank you for having me, and I'll see you next time. Thanks, Thomas and Allie, for that really interesting discussion. Let's now get into the specific trials for the coronavirus vaccine. So first, let's talk about AstraZeneca and Oxford's trial, which is the most recent trial to release results. Their vaccine candidate is based off of an altered adenovirus, which is a virus that causes a common cold. The results that they published were based off of over 23,000 participants from the UK and Brazil. Volunteers got two doses about a month apart. I heard that participants got different amounts of the vaccine. Is that true? Yes. So actually, for some participants, for the first dose, they only got half of the dose. And this is a mistake due to a miscalculation. 
But interestingly, for those who only got the half dose first, they calculated the efficacy to be about 90%. But for those who got two full doses, the efficacy was 62%. And so it's interesting that this half dose actually had a higher efficacy. But this higher efficacy was calculated in about 2,800 volunteers out of the 23,000 participants that they reported results for, which is actually a pretty small number compared to the to the numbers that were used to calculate the higher efficacies in the Moderna and Pfizer trials. So one question is that considering that this vaccine uses the common cold to deliver the coronavirus gene, is it still safe? So there were some concerns because the trial was paused twice when some volunteers experienced neurological problems, but the FDA did not directly link the vaccine to these problems, but advise the company to look out for similar problems as their trial continues. And in the press release, the company said that there were no serious safety issues in the results that they reported. There are still a lot of unanswered questions about the results of the trial, and the company will likely need to collect more data before submitting for emergency authorization from the FDA. Hopefully, we will see more of the results from this trial in a peer-reviewed publication soon. So that's the AstraZeneca and Oxford trial. Now, Ali, why don't you tell us about the Moderna trial? The Moderna trial, some fast facts are that more than 30,000 participants at 100 clinical research sites were enrolled in the trial that was launched in July of this year. 37% were from racial and ethnic minorities. And in the results reported, there were 90 cases in the placebo group and five COVID cases in the vaccinated group. Among these cases, 11 were severe COVID-19 out of the 95, and they all occurred in the placebo group. One important note is that there is a booster dose with the Moderna vaccine, and that's based four weeks later than the initial dose. Also, this vaccine needs to be stored at minus 20 degrees Celsius, but it keeps for a month in refrigerator temperatures. The Moderna vaccine is a new type of vaccine based off of mRNA. How exactly does an mRNA vaccine work? The mRNA vaccines work by allowing a snippet of the virus's genetic code to tell cells how to build the spike protein on the surface of coronavirus. So they essentially teach the immune system to recognize the real thing. The vaccine contains a strip of genetic material within a lipid bubble And then inside your cells, they read the mRNA instructions for the spike protein and then begin to generate copies of the spike protein. And then certain cells called antigen-presenting cells in your immune system consume these viral proteins that have been made and pass these viral proteins to other cells in your immune system called T cells. And then your immune system can learn to recognize the virus and release T-cells and B-cells to kill the virus in your body. That brings me back to our first episode on the immune system. So how exactly was this vaccine developed so fast? Yeah, that's one of the big questions. And compared to other vaccine development, actually the mumps vaccine was the fastest to be approved for humans in the past. And this took four years to be developed. I think specifically for COVID-19, there are a lot of factors considering the global impact of the pandemic. But in particular for Pfizer and Moderna, these were developed quickly because scientists could start working before 
there was even a case of COVID in the US using the viral genome that was published on the internet. And so because making mRNA doesn't involve time-consuming steps like growing ingredients from chicken eggs, for example, and can be done in the lab, it was a lot quicker than other vaccine development. Our next trial is the Pfizer vaccine candidate, which is also an mRNA vaccine. Phase three started on July 27th and so far has over 40,000 participants that have been enrolled. About 42% of the global participants and 30% of the U.S. participants are from racially and ethically diverse backgrounds, and 41% of the global and 45% of the U.S. participants are between the 56 to 85 age range. Pfizer calculated their efficacy based on 170 cases of COVID-19 that occurred at least 28 days after the first dose. And they found that 162 cases were in the placebo group and eight were in the vaccinated group, which led to them calculating a 95% efficacy. And this was similar across age, gender, race, ethnicity, demographics. And the efficacy in older adults, those over 65 years of age, was over 94%. Given these really promising results, Pfizer applied for emergency authorization for its vaccine on November 20th. I know one difference between the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines is the temperature that they have to be kept at. Moderna's is negative 20 degrees Celsius and Pfizer being negative 70 degrees Celsius. Does Pfizer have any special plans to help keep this vaccine ultra cold? Yeah, this may be a big logistical hurdle for this vaccine, but Pfizer has specially designed temperature-controlled thermal shippers that use dry ice to maintain the temperature of negative 70 degrees Celsius for up to 10 days. They also have GPS-enabled thermal sensors that can track the location and temperature of their vaccine shipments to make sure that the vaccines are at the correct temperature when being shipped. Wow, that's pretty high-tech. Now let's go over some questions that we got on our Instagram page at COVID up to date about the vaccine trials. On the topic of mRNA vaccines, we got a question that why should we trust an mRNA vaccine when it's the first of its kind with no historical data? Why might mRNA vaccines be safe? That's a really good question. So one aspect of mRNA manufacturing that makes it safer compared to other methods is that it doesn't require toxic chemicals or cell cultures that could be contaminated with other viruses. And so making an mRNA vaccine avoids common risks associated with other vaccine platforms that tend to include live virus particles or even viral vectors. But has mRNA ever been used in humans or animals before? Yeah, so there's actually a really in-depth Nature Review article that was published two years ago in January 2018, and it describes the first report of a successful use of mRNA vaccines in animals that was published in 1990. In this study, mRNA were injected into mice, and then protein production was detected. So then two years later, in 1992... Another study used mRNA that was produced in rats and showed a physiological response in these rats. Although these initial studies occurred around 30 years ago, these results didn't lead to substantial investment in developing mRNA therapeutics, largely because there were concerns associated with mRNA instability, 
and inefficient delivery in animals. So a lot of vaccine development has focused on DNA-based and protein-based therapeutic approaches. But currently there are many human clinical trials that have started using mRNA, including vaccines against Zika, HIV, and rabies, as well as some mRNA-based cancer therapies. What are some advantages for an mRNA vaccine? Yeah, so first, safety is an advantage. Because mRNA is already made in your body, it's not an infectious agent, and there's no potential risk of infection after introducing mRNA into your cells. Another reason why mRNA has advantages over other vaccines is that it's a minimal genetic vector, which means that your body can't attack the vector itself, so you can get the vaccine multiple times. And then lastly, this might be the largest advantage, is that mRNA vaccines have the potential for rapid, scalable manufacturing because they can be produced in a lab environment in petri dishes, and they don't require animals to be produced. But now that we've talked a lot about mRNA vaccines, let's go into some more logistical questions about the populations that can benefit from these vaccines. One of our followers asked, what should breastfeeding and pregnant women do, and will they even be approved for pregnancy initially? That's a really good question. Vaccine trials have exclusion criteria, so they don't include certain populations, especially initially when they are testing a vaccine. These vaccine trials don't include pregnant women. And in the U.S., pregnant women haven't been allowed to participate in vaccine trials in general. Data specific to safety and pregnancy for vaccines is limited. But if you want more information about this, the Hopkins Bloomberg Public Health Magazine actually has a full article in its fall issue. So check that out for more information. Another question was related to whether there were any potential fertility concerns for receiving the vaccine. When I saw this question, I wanted to dig into more research about it. And first of all, there are no fertility concerns reported with any of the vaccine trials currently. And when I was doing research about this, I actually found an article about a video on social media that was floating around with false claims about COVID-19 vaccine infertility. The video apparently claimed that there was a vaccine manufactured in the UK that had chemicals to cause, quote unquote, an explosion of infertility. And this just shows how much misinformation is out there. First of all, there are not gender-specific COVID-19 vaccines, uh, which is what the video was claiming, and none have been shown to affect fertility in men or women. Another question that our followers had was that the reports stated that the vaccine is only effective against symptoms and not an infection. What is the truth behind that? These trials have something called a primary endpoint, which is the primary outcome that the trials are aimed to look at, especially when evaluating preliminary data. So for all of these trials, the primary endpoint was looking at whether a person got symptomatic COVID-19, so whether they actually were experiencing symptoms. For example, from Moderna's protocol, a COVID-19 case was defined as having two systemic symptoms, so that could be fever, chills, headache, sore throat, or having at least one respiratory sign or symptom, which could be cough, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, or if they have some more imaging evidence, respiratory signs. 
and a COVID-19 case had to have a positive PCR test. So it is true that these trials mainly looked at whether the vaccine prevented symptoms, but these trials also have secondary endpoints that will look at whether the vaccines impacted the transmission of the virus, whether a person got actually whether it actually helped a person from getting infected with COVID-19. And we probably will not know these results until more data has been analyzed and published. Our last question is, what might be a realistic timeline for when the vaccine could be available to the general public? And the answer to this question is not set in stone, but there are certain next steps that are involved with all of these trials. So in December, the FDA may authorize one or more of these vaccines after reviewing the effectiveness, the safety, and manufacturing of each of the formulations. A CDC advisory committee will continue to discuss prioritizing vaccines for high-risk groups. Then, at the end of 2020, the government projects that Pfizer and Moderna will provide 40 million doses, enough for 20 million people, by the end of the year. AstraZeneca, on the other hand, has said that the first 4 million doses could be ready in December and 40 million could be delivered in the first quarter of 2021, but this is all pending their FDA authorization and publication of additional data. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the leading infectious disease expert in the U.S., has said that a vaccine could be ready for all Americans by April but the exact timeline of when most people could get the vaccine, it's still not quite known as it depends on a lot of factors, uh, especially in the next coming months. We will keep a close eye on how everything develops. What all this news has shown us that there are potentially some promising vaccine candidates and we may be getting a coronavirus vaccine very soon. For more updates on the COVID-19 vaccine development and pandemic, follow our Instagram account at COVIDUpToDate with the number two on Instagram and reach out with any comments or questions. Thanks for listening. See you next time.